Hey world, and welcome to another Pink Bike Podcast. I'm Mike Levy, your host for these things, and today, there's only two of us. I'm here with Henry Quinney, and we're recording in person, face-to-face, in the Pink Bike office. I'm looking at him right now, everybody. What a sight. What a sight. (laughs) (laughs) So as you guys may or may not know, our own Henry Quinney used to work as a World Cup mechanic, and he's got stories stories that he's going to share with us today. Now, in a recent podcast, he casually mentioned how one of his World Cup riders bent his direct mount stem and all this other stuff. And I thought, we got to talk to this guy. We got to talk to this guy. So, Henry, how long were you a World Cup mechanic for first? Well, that's it. I I needed it for a couple of years. Um, So I always get a bit nervous. You know, I mean, I've kind of unintentionally like I never set out to work in the media. I fucking tried to write a book of poetry and it all got well out of hand. Did you actually? <laughs> no, well, sort of, yeah. Like I was, got, I was writing a book and um, it was meant to be a serious philosophical work and then every chapter it just derailed into how shit I thought Ed Sheeran's music was. And um, that's not even a joke. It was, it really just, it, that's, that's the flavour it took. And, um, and so I ended up doing this media thing and obviously it's like at GMBN and now here it's like, that's my, that's my credential, right? I was a World Cup mechanic, but... Listen, I've worked with some really good mechanics and I really respect respect the craft of it. And so there were World Cup mechanics and there were World Cup mechanics like JC Schumerlach and John Stout, people that I've worked with who are like Sam Hill and Mick Hanna's mechanics of 20 and 10 years respectively. And so I'm always a bit nervous to be like, I'm a World Cup mechanic, like I'm a big deal or something. It makes me a bit, it makes me a bit uncomfortable, but I will, um, I'll get through that today. <laughs> I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Like mm. you're not Marshy, you're not JC. Yeah, I'm just some dude. But you yeah. were a World Cup mechanic. You did this for how long, Henry? I did two seasons on the World Cup and then I did a bit of freelance on the EWS. Yeah, so all around Europe and wherever, wherever the circuit took you. Yeah. So you did those two seasons, Henry. Who did you wrench for during that time? So I worked for what was this, just a small privateer team with um, Harry Malloy and Ronnie Vidman. Um, and then I worked for Polygon UR. Then once I stopped doing the World Cups, I did a bit of um, freelance for Chain Reaction Newt Proof on the EWS circuit. Can I ask you what riders you went for when you were at Polygon? Yeah, so I mainly, well, I kind of did a bit of everyone. I did a bit with Tracy, did a bit with, mainly with Kenta, Kenta Gallagher, mm-hmm. who's just this amazing rider who just got so unlucky with injury. Um, but he was a really cool guy because he actually won an Eliminator cross-country World Cup. And he had a lot of stuff on the table, like, you know, big sponsorships and he was like I just want to race downhill and he gave it all in to be a privateer and then he was getting top 20s as a privateer and so he got signed with Polygon and then before the season even started he did his shoulder then when he was coming back from his shoulder he slipped on this like bit of I think it was like a bit of North Shore which is why he shouldn't ride skinnies bit of North Shore and, um, and then he did his knee and he got real unlucky for a couple of years and so he actually he's got a pretty cool job now he is the he basically is like a technical coach for the Cannondale World Cup cross country team you know. can you imagine Henry being that good at one thing let alone two or three things well it's funny because at one point when it was Alex Fioli Mick and Tracy Hannah and Kenta it was flying you know Polygon is it was it was a strange team in some ways because it was quite big but also flew under the radar in other ways but each one of them had won a world cup which is actually quite rare but yeah. you know what I mean and um yeah. and I, I you know when we did that state of the sport survey the thing that I always came back to was how massively talented Kenta was and how basically he, he, he not like he, I don't think he, he followed the money, but being like that sort of like top 30 rider, it's really hard to make a wage. I think he thought, oh man, I can go, I can do other things and make, make like a real wage and have like a, a nice life all round rather than having five exciting weekends a year. And um, I mean, he was just enormously talented and um, he did, he ended up being one of those riders on that Cannondale program that was like short lived on that prototype bike. But watching him ride, the thing with the World Cup riders, the way they track the ground is just like nothing else. Mm-hmm. And they'll just be, be riding something easy and they'll be getting away from you. And, you know, the media always come down at the end of the hill and they tell you who's going fast or not. And everyone would always say, Kenta is out there hauling, like, holy Michael, like he, he's going some. And um, he was great to work with, real cool guy. Yeah. Let's talk about World Cup speed for a minute, just to sort of frame some of the stuff we're going to talk about later on in this show. Everybody, everybody knows somebody who's fast. Mm-hmm. Like every town has some riders that are they're fast as fuck. Like mm. let's be honest, they're yeah, real fast, just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Like out, out of this world, quick. You know, maybe they've been in some movies or some edits or whatever, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, but like those people, they they wouldn't qualify 
Oh, no. They wouldn't even be in the same 20 seconds of a qualifying time of you a know, World Cup race. Remy Metallier, who is one of the sickest riders, I think, out there right now. He's the most skilled rider in the season. He's amazing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the precision, the consistency. I don't really watch that much, like, vlogging stuff on YouTube. He doesn't miss a vlog, I don't everybody. watch any <laughs> vlogging stuff on YouTube. <laughs> but um, his, his, him and Yoan Borelli are the only people that I, I would ever think about watching. And I'm right and thinking, like, I don't know if he ever qualified for World Cup. He tried. He tried several times. I don't think he ever qualified. Yeah. I mean, and that's how good these riders are. Yeah. You know, you find out some rider you've never even heard of in the top 50. But if you qualify for a World Cup, you are going so fast and be under no illusions, you would not qualify. Do you know what I mean? If you're listening Why to this Why are you right looking now, at me when you say that? You well, say I wouldn't qualify? I, you might. I mean, you might qualify, Mike. <laughs> I might cartwheel down the hill fast enough. No, <laughs> no if, I mean, for some perspective, like if, if it was a five minute track... You know, if I did it in five minutes, these guys are going to do it in like two and a half minutes or I mean, something. It's outrageous. Insane. I mean, you yeah. watch Matt Beer ride, who's a PB Tech editor, who is unbelievably skilled. Matt was a twice national champion. You know, this was, you know, I mean, obviously Stevie Smith, one of the great. This was this was against riders like Stevie Smith. So Matt knows how to ride a bike. Like He's holy okay. shit, he shreds. And I didn't know. You know, I think Matt is like at that level where he was. In my mind, having seen him ride and seen the people ride, like he, he's he's on, he's on World Cup pace. I think even now he's like calling. It's ridiculous. But when you ride with them, like we were riding at Provo, and he couldn't even tow me into stuff because he kept dropping me. I was like, yeah. Matt, for God, I'm I need to speed check you. But if we have any turns beforehand, I can't do it. Yeah, like simmer down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if there's like national champions don't qualify for World Cup mm. races. Let's just let's just put it that way. And the other thing you mentioned there about the speed. I've ridden behind World Cup racers at press camps and things, and it's they're almost playing at a different game mm. because they're they don't need the same speed that we need. You know, yes. we need to go faster. Like I don't have the pop. Yeah. So they're coming in slower to something because they have more speed, or maybe they're coming in faster because they have more skills and they can squish the damn thing. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's a whole another it's a whole another ball game, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's twelve. So, in that vein, these guys are going fast as fuck. They are rough on stuff. Things are breaking. They're not thinking about reliability. They're thinking about winning. They're thinking about going as fast as possible. In your time as a mechanic, which rider was the hardest on equipment? Hmm. I mean, it's funny because I think when we think about, I think when you get to that level of local pinner, they're often hard because they're rough. You know, I, mean, they're, they're, I mean, obviously they're, they're probably silky smooth to watch, but actually the way they hook up the brakes. And if you think about what happens to a wheelbase, as it gets, it, it tracks rough ground. If you're not on the brakes, it's not actually trying to constantly pull the wheelbase apart. But if you do ride on the brakes over rough ground, like, you know, sometimes your medium to high speed riders can actually be less hard on stuff because they're not on the brakes so much. Mm-hmm. So it would be amazing, you know, you go on riding, I mean, you know, say Mick or Kenta. Kenta, Kenta had a real like ankle down style, you know. And so he could he'd be like 28 PSI Kushkor downhill tyres and we actually got I remember in Croatia we actually got some prototype tyres made by Kenda that had an extra layer of Kevlar in because we knew it was going to be really rocky mm-hmm. and the thing is with rocks as well that it's sort of important to acknowledge is that like a wet knife will cut better than a dry knife because it's lubricated so wet rocks will slice tyres more often than dry than dry rock or dusty rock as well like anything if it can slip like it's got a talcum powder effect it's a lot more likely to wow. cut tyres I never thought of that yeah and so we we made these special tires. We were like, if it rains, in, we did some testing there. We we're like, if it rains here, we are going to be absolutely smoked, you know. Yeah. And so what you'd do is you would basically glue the tire onto the rim with an insert inside, so you could always get down. Mm-hmm. Um, which is actually why Alex Viol qualified so low in Lords 2017 is because he got a puncture in his qualifying run, but he had an insert glued in there, and so he got down to the bottom and then subsequently won the next day. So it's, it's a really important thing to do. Mm-hmm. You would glue tires on both sides. Um, some some mechanics in my team did. Yeah. Um, it, it depends what relationship you are with the rider and what the rider wants to do. Yeah. I I was always loath to do it. I did it sometimes, but the problem is that that rim is pretty much done then. Right. And it's a carbon rim that's, you know, like an alloy rim. You'd be like, it's going to get dented to shit anyway. It doesn't matter. But you'd feel like, oh man, this is sort of wasteful. But you know, we we we, we I had that conversation. But yeah, Kenta would do like, you know, in Croatia, I don't know how many wheels he did. I mean, just like a wheel of run. Yeah, I remember Troy Brosnan, I, I rode his bike, uh, Crankworx, probably like two or three years ago, 
and I remember I grabbed his bike from him and his back wheel, it was a, some sort of Mavic mm. D-Max thing or whatever. And all the spokes were loose. Like they were, mm. they were loose. And I was like, oh yeah, uh, are you sure this is okay? And he's like, mate, if you're not killing a wheel every run, yeah. you ain't going fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's when I realized that how good carbon wheels were because we got some, so the brand we were working for with E13, they bought out this new mold just at the start of the 2018 season and we didn't have enough and so basically Kenta was running the old style in uh, Croatia where Mick was on the new style Mick didn't do any rims in Croatia we went to Mont Saint-Anne with these new carbon wheels right and the whole weekend between four riders who completed the full like you know they didn't get disqualified so they didn't fail to qualify or anything so they did all everything and I think we needed one wheel wow I mean so that's when, when we when we talk about carbon stuff people say yeah but it all breaks i'm like some stuff breaks i mean i'm in my first season and i had three riders to work with just as one mechanic which is a busy beaver busy beaver and at lords and it was a wheeler run and we ran out of rims i was building that wheel. i didn't stop in my hands because i remember the dirt it's the same with fort william the week after i was like a couple of the next race but you know when like your hands are drying and you're just doing so much manual labor and like it's like I've been working in a cement factory all day. I have no idea about manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, you know, just building wheel after wheel yeah. after wheel after wheel. It was horrific. Are these guys running very low spoke tension? Um, it depends on the rider. I mean, spoke tension is something, I think it's a term called Young's modulus, which basic, basically talks about, it doesn't matter how m- the metal is preloaded. The, I suppose I'm not I'm, I'm no scientist, but basically it doesn't matter how how that's, that spoke is preloaded. It's not going to stretch because mm-hmm. that's actually down to its um, that's actually down to sort of its makeup, I suppose. But I I think I think there is a difference in spoke tension, yeah. and I think that you know like we don't know how they built the pyramids. It doesn't mean they didn't do it. And so <laughs> aliens did. Ali- it. Oh, sorry, I feel so <laughs> I feel so foolish. But so when we talk about spoke tension, like. I think there's the, the application of this Young's modulus, which is fe- struggling to to tell me everything about spoke tension. Because I, I would always say running slightly lower. Because what you want to do is if you can run a spoke with relatively low tension that's thread locked at the nipple, but then you've greased a washer and the nipple, and so it, it can move like this. So you actually are running low tension. So you're getting what the rider would feel, which people would say doesn't exist, but the rider would feel comfort, and you the rim would last longer. And yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because because the, the spoke hangs in the wheel; it's yep. not, you know. So it is about how it stretches, and so then in that way, preload shouldn't shouldn't affect it. But what I think is it's actually about, yeah, it's actually about how the side spokes are preloaded before they engage. Yeah. But anyway, that's a different story. Did you ever read that book by Job's Jobs Job's Brand? No, I didn't. No, it's what? about how to build wheels. It's like a mechanic. Oh no, that one. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, yeah, come back to that. I mean, yeah, like it's funny. I think whenever you really care about something, I really cared about. I always wanted to be a good mechanic, you know, man. Like I really wanted. That was what I wanted yeah. to be outside of school. And and as soon as I really understood you could be a World Cup mechanic, that's all I wanted to be. And so I think when you have something on a pedestal, and like it's, it's similar now, right? Like I said, I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about it because, like, I don't want to seem like I don't respect it. Like I, I I really admire it as an institution. I really think it's just cool, and I've got so many friends that are just fantastic mechanics. But when you get to something you really care about, and it doesn't matter if it's you know your dream job, like being a World Cup mechanic or anything really, I don't think you'll ever be good enough until you do it. You know, like I wasn't good enough to start with. Like my first World Cup, I had to be good enough, and I stepped up to the plate. How you know? nervous were you for that first World Cup race? I was, I I like the nerves, so it was. I don't. I never suppress nerves, you know, because it's like riding, like you know, it's like it's like riding a green trail when it's only using thirty percent of your brain. That's when you do the sketchy shit. Yeah. When you're riding, a, when true. you're riding something gnarly, you're so present that you have to be good enough. Yeah. And so I just took that attitude to it, like I'm not good enough, but I'm going to be good enough. Yeah. And um, after that first World Cup, I literally, my, I just went through a glass ceiling. I remember just being like, okay, I, I've, you've just got no choice. And so I remember, yeah, that first World Cup building wheels and yeah. any worry I had, that was such a horrible weekend. And so, because like I said, it was, it was a rim of run. We had, poor, one of the riders had food poisoning. 
So, I mean, we were basically talking about, genuinely, this was a conversation we had at the pits, duct tape in the bottom of their trousers, just in case they shit themselves on the live stream. Ooh. And that's not even a joke. Like, it was a rough time. And um, and I was doing, we had a run, like, the bikes were, we're having these problems with these forks. Um, and it was a real tense time, man. And it was funny because in all of that, and all of that bedlam and the, the, the mayhem of it, me being good enough, mechanical being nervous, was such an inconsequential thing. Not to you. No, you no. got to do your part. No, your oh, oh, no, oh, no, I mean, but in terms of, like, exactly, you've got, you've got to get it done. And so my, me being a bit nervous or prissy didn't even factor because it was like there's a job to do and you just have to do it. Yeah. And you, you find yourself doing it and you find yourself, you find yourself being adequate, which is something that your nerves might not have told you would be the case, you know? Yeah, yeah. So let's go back. I had asked you who was the roughest on components of your riders. Did you say it was Kenta? I think Kenta was pretty rough, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I worked a bit with Elliot Heap and Keelan Grant on Chain Reaction. Mm-hmm. We did a bit of riding together and a bit of kind of testing and stuff. And because they ride smaller bikes, you know, they kind yeah. of seem rougher. But I think actually on a bike like that, you know, 230 or whatever square one polygon. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Mick, Mick's, for instance, Mick's is, Mick, in terms of power he puts through the ground, it's probably high, but he's unbel- everything's a downslope to Mick. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of chops and changes, you know? Years ago at Crankworks, I rode Mick's polygon downhill bike mm. with How trick stuff brakes. And mm. I was different. I wonder, though, if you were the mechanic during that time and we didn't know each other. What year was that? I don't know, 2001. 2001. No, no, I was still in school. <laughs> I was going for my Harry Potter phase phase then. I was, I was really into Quidditch. <laughs> I actually just watched all the Harry Potters. Oh, dude, all eight no, of them in a row. And, okay, so me and Max, who's a videographer here, we were out shooting some photos yesterday. And me and Max, we agree on most things. He said with a straight face that the Harry Potter films were better than Lord of the Rings. And I nearly wrapped this cone like, through him. I was like, how very... Like... They get a lot better. Like Dude, they four, get five, a lot better. Six, those, seven, kids, those, those kids should be ashamed of themselves. They what? are so bad at acting. I would like, 100% disagree. You 100%? Have you yeah, s- no, they, I think they're great oh, little actors. No. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, God, it pains me. Like Daniel Radcliffe wandering about with his blue eyes. The only thing... Green eyes, Harry Potter. Green eyes. And he's got... Put- it's just a movie. Dude, Did you read the books? Just a movie, but... Did you read, read the yeah. books? That's yeah. the problem. That's the problem. I actually have standards about... Yeah. God, if you didn't read the books so The movies are so awful. <clears throat> oh... Ginny Weasley. Fuck me, she was bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they were just rounding up ginger children. Oh, you, you can do this, you can do this. And like, they were awful. Awful. What is, what is the craziest or the weirdest or the strangest part failure Ooh. you've seen during your time as a World Cup mechanic? You mentioned bent direct mount stems I mean, earlier. Nick like bending his handlebars. That's ridiculous. I mean, also scary. Yeah. You know, because your contact points just move. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, the team I worked for, we had some, basically, so different teams will go about it in different ways. So if you are Greg Minar and you're looking to develop parts, Shimano are really going to listen to you because you're Greg Minar, right? Right. That wasn't the case for my understanding on that Polygon team. You guys had some very well, but, interesting but this sponsors. Is it. And so, so you go through the tiers. So basically... You know, I remember speaking to the guy that ran basically all the Shimano. And this, sorry, this might be a bit of gossip for your roadie fans out there. But he run, he did all the contracts for the European, sorry, the UCI World Pro Tour teams, mm-hmm. you know. So he was like, of the 18 teams, this is in 2018, of the 18 teams at the World Tour level, 17 of them run Shimano. And like, we only give product to six of them. So everyone else are buying it a trade. Wow. Yeah. And so basically, you, you think about teams as the way they're tiered. So you have your Santa Cruz Syndicate, or I don't know, your, your big world dominating teams that basically have the pick of the bunch. They can choose the really high end products, know their feedbacks can be listened to, and get a good, a good wage, right? Mm-hmm. Then the next level is you're kind of at a crossroads. Do you go for those brands where your development might not be listened to, which is important? your money might not be as high but you get the good product or do you go left of field and get a collect a large wage potentially i mean i, I can't talk to the the dealings of each team or team or rider but you do see it with riders they will go for your left field brands they might only have one or two athletes but they're one of them so they get listened to they get a good wage mm-hmm. and subsequently they have to ride some parts that you may or may not be that familiar with 
No, sometimes these parts are really good. I mean, like, we absolutely... Sorry, you should have just seen the look Mike gave me. But some of these parts are really good. But they don't always... They don't always... You know, because prestige is a big thing in mountain biking and how much part's worth and its perception of it. Now, there's some stuff that is really held high, which I think is absolute crap. And there's some stuff that is very underrated. Like, you know, we always talk about... You know, Kenda have this thing with Kenda surprise, is it going to grip? And Kenda tires are actually really bloody good. Yeah. And I really rated them. Yeah, you might have slightly different takes on them, like, you know, the Hellcat and the Pinner are both slightly different, but they are very, I, th- I think they're very good. And so a brand like that is a really good example of they have a good product, they have a good back, and they're a big company. What they don't have right now is prestige. And so you, that's, that's a dream for a rider. But Henry, is that, I don't want to pick on Kenda. No. Like the, the Kenda's tires are, they're more than good enough for us and they're more than good enough for tons of racers and all that stuff. I'm curious, so your racers, if they felt held back by using not Maxxis, like mm-hmm. let's be honest, like everybody wants to use Maxxis. We see yeah. blacked out tires. And- mm-hmm. well, well, what would normally happen is it's all tied into how the contracts run. So, you know, teams want their, they want to have the association of success. Now, if it's never going to happen on their own product, they'll be in their contract that you can use in this situation, in this case, maybe the, the, a different tyre brand. What normally happens is, at least in my experience with it, is, for instance, when Kenda didn't have a mud tyre, you can use, we could use whatever we wanted. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as the development gets to a certain point and you, you start racing that mud spike, you're then, you're then into it. Mm-hmm. When they, I think it was the grand mudder they brought out. And that, that seems entirely reasonable. I mean, you know, how to put it, blacking out parts isn't uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be, you know, that might be on ties, yes, maybe. But it is other stuff as well. Like, like what? Oh, I mean, dude. Like you said, every, everyone, it's not even about what's better, it's about what's known. Because this is these people's career, and races are often pretty conservative bunch. Yeah. You know? Like you only look at, yeah, again, go back to road biking, but you only need to look about how riders resisted wider ties at lower pressures for so long. Because yeah. they're like, I'm not going to be the guy that experiments. I'm going to be the guy that wins they, the world champs still on, want, on 21 mil tires or whatever, you know? They don't want disc brakes still. These idiots are out there yeah, not but, racing on disc brakes. Well, that's a... Yeah, well, let's not get into that. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but um, I remember there was this team. So basically, in your World Cup circuit, right or wrong, because it's what people know, people come from being a privateer, for instance, or a different team, and they've probably been running Rock Shocks or Fox. So even if they go to another suspension manufacturer, they still want to run RockShox or Fox. That's just the truth of it. Yeah. And I remember, this is a genuine story, coming around the corner and seeing with my own eyes a team that wasn't running RockShox or Fox gluing Fox dials, sorry, gluing their brand's dials onto a Fox damper. Yeah. In a fork. I mean, that stuff happens. So they set the settings. They, the dials don't work anymore. They're just glued on. Yeah. And um, and that stuff would, would happen. Yeah. So sure. you're saying inside another brand's fork, there was, is it, is there, it there was a damper. damper. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and so there's things, I mean, I've, you know, how to put it? I know people that have drilled out rebound circuits yeah. just to make the fast on premium high end forks, you know? And the problem is that sometimes. A mechanical rider's feedback. People are booked into the. Be like, oh well, you'll see that in two years when we finally get it through the production, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's move on. Talk about some product testing. A lot of these teams. That's part of their job mm. too, isn't it? Not just to race World Cups and be visible and and make you know edits and these things. It's to do well, but also to develop products. Was that yeah. the case with? Yeah, t- totally. I mean, that was a big that was a big part of what the brands were getting on a team like Polygon is because those like Kuss like who runs the team he really knows his shit when it comes to product development and so they're getting a lot of insight right yeah and you know I mean I think the problem with mountain biking in general in my opinion from a product development side is that we're in a position where and this this isn't specific to any team that I worked with in particular this is just from my feeling in the industry over the last couple of years having done a couple of different jobs you know the way we think about, you know, think about the factory teams and the factory teams aren't factory teams like they are in Formula One or rallying. Mm-hmm. They're still privateer teams. They just have a contract that happens to be like, you know, you think of, I don't know, the pivot factory team. If they got if their contract run out and they signed with Lapierre, they'd be the Lapierre factory team. <laughs> what? But that's, there's no bricks and mortar involved. Yeah. It's all just, you know, these smoke, you know, smoke and mirrors. And so 
what can often happen is you get a factory team that is sponsored by one really so sponsored by let's say brand a now brand a has someone in in that company that's really championing this team Mm -hmm. right but actually that brand this factory is basically has doesn't own a factory they just book in a production slots and although they might be really really well run they might actually be designing they they might have an in-house design team and so they're designing via consultancy and so this consultancy has come to this brand being like we're going to make this for you right and they've got this image and they've got this idea and then getting feedback through the brand to the to the engineer who's just a freelance person is sometimes really difficult and um you know you, you do a lot of testing but it always makes me laugh you know i mean i think there are some brands that really that racing is in their blood and they, they do do anything for performance and that is absolutely true but some of them you look and you think that's not true because i tried to give you some feedback like as a journalist or whatever like this broke they're like no no it didn't yeah it did yeah. nah <laughs> and you're there like what like they're always this stuff like we, we never rest and then you give them some really on them like this happened to me i can repeat it and i can prove it yeah no i probably didn't know did it and you're there just like dude give it up like yeah just yeah. admit it <laughs> have you ever had a rider we'll get back to testing in a minute but have you ever had a rider who or a racer who's broken something during a race like okay so we all hear these stories about racers who something breaks mm-hmm. and they like run off into the bush with their broken frame or their broken fork or whatever mm. D- does that happen have that has that happened to you um i'm trying to think anything that happened that was really bad you know oh man this is a real howler on my part so my first ever race with tracy tracy hannah was at the aussie national so i flew in mm-hmm I don't know, I mean, it, it is my fault because I was the last person to touch the bike. But, oh man, it was so bad. So she was only one of those Polygon Square ones and she bought it from her local bike shop. And, sorry, not bought it, she collected it. They basically just gave it a tune-up or they did something to it mm-hmm. before the race. And then, so I got it, you know, out the suitcase, built it up. Have, off you go, Trace. You have a great ride now. So, you know, obviously the next morning we go to the thing and, and she goes up for her first one. And the bike shop had put, the air can on the wrong side oh no and so it fouled on the frame yeah it's like basically the fox x2s they have a the the direction of the valve runs parallel to the sh- shaft right and I mean, this isn't something i ever thought to check for i mean i check for now <laughs> <laughs> but i was like you know just super excited to be part of the team yeah. and tracy's an amazing rider and you know she to be honest she on that national circuit at the time she was very very dominant but yeah so she went up like hit her first compression shock just blew apart into you know, yeah. Ex- you know, she was just like, what the f-? And like, and that was my first ever real meeting with Trace. It was a, it was a bit of a, it was a bit, and, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, like, um, we know each other a little bit now. Me and you, we've, we've worked together a bit and like, I'm always, I like to try and think I'm quite objective about things, right? And I'll call a spade a spade forever. It is what it is. However, I do hope that then when I say something is good or whatever, then it's also taken that context. Like mm-hmm. he's always straight, so we can trust him on this one because he'll always he'll yeah. always voice his opinion quite, you know, warts and all. And it comes to like that being a mechanic. Like you've got to own up your mistakes yeah. all the time. And like, I was the last person to touch that bike, so it's on me. Yep. Knowingly or not, that's on my... And then so it's basically when it comes down the line, you say, no, that wasn't me or that wasn't the however often it happens. They know they can trust you. Yeah. And so I just had to just ride it out with Trace. I was like, yep, that was on me. Like, because it was. The last person to touch the bike. And I don't feel like that was on you, but I can also see why it would be. Yeah. But what's the most embarrassing thing that definitely was on you at a World Cup race? Like, we all make mm. mistakes. I had a buddy's brake pads fall out one time. I installed these brakes on his bike, and I forgot to put the cotter pin through. Yeah. He picked up his brand new bike, super excited. My buddy Wayne. <laughs> Good old Wayne. <laughs> Good old Wayne. Picked his bike up and went for a ride and his fucking rear brake pads fell out. And it mm. was fine. He didn't crash. But like, I mean, I was mortified mm. for like, even now I'm like, Jesus Christ. I had a, I, my friend. So we did our first World Cup at the same race in Lords, mm-hmm. And for finals, he forgot to put the brake, 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 brake bin in for his rider. Oh, good Lord. First World Cup. Yeah. And did the rider 
crash? Or? Uh, no, they just they just walked off the side and they walked down the hill. Yeah. And like, you know, when you're... Because there's... Okay, so you, you, there's the obvious title fight or the championship fight at the front and you think that's all the overall means. But for a rider that wants to just get protected for next season, which is basically going to change the whole mindset for a whole year, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. You know, Can you DNF- explain that for that, yeah. there for a sec? So basically, what sponsors want is they want airtime. That is so important to them. And so as a consequence of this, the lottery nature of downhill racing, basically the top 60 qualify, that's it, doesn't actually really support the sport in some ways. So over the years, I imagine this was the case that was a bit before my time, they brought in the protected system. So basically, if you are in a certain place in the ranking, then you, even if you don't qualify for that particular cup, if you're currently in a good position, you're going to get through to the finals. And this is really good because it basically, it doesn't dissuade sponsors from spending a decent amount of money on, you know, on um, on a team. Now, what that then transpires to is the system we've got now, where they've done it off the season's, you know, the previous ranking from the, the season. And that's really good because it means if you have a shit first round, you know, you're not going to get Aaron Gwynn missing a World Cup, etc. And so again, it, it really kind of placates sponsors' concerns. And so for a rider that, yeah, might be not necessarily fighting at the very sharp end, but they're hoping to get... Because if, if say if their contract's up, right, at the end of that year, and they are a protected rider, so they're guaranteed live stream time, basically. That's a big deal. About, that, I mean, that makes a huge difference to their fight. Yeah, huge difference in terms of money. And so even at the first World Cup, like just, you know, I think there's this thing about, oh, that guy's probably a top 20 rider. He probably doesn't really care about the overall. Maybe he can win a World Cup. No, 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 no. He he really cares about the overall mm. because if he can get a protected spot, like his life could be very different if it's a contract year for him. Would you say if once you have that protected spot, a rider could take more chances in races because they're protected and, and maybe do better? But potentially. I mean, that's that's not for me to say. That's a very... That's a very subjective thing to the individual yeah. but I do think the World Cup racing is in a real pickle in that the problem with World Cup racing is that riders national series aren't presti- prestigious enough so it's better for a rider to try and qualify for World Cup than it is to go smash national and which is completely backwards I would love to see it if we could do away with all this and it you know it would be a, a short term pain for a long term gain in my opinion if we had like a super series do away with like qualifying for the race have like maybe 30 riders who are there every time. New fans will be able to get to know these names better, like they do in Formula One or whatever, and know the personalities a bit. And then the other riders don't have to spend 20 grand carting around each year and can just race a, a far stronger field in a national series, right? Because for a for a, a newcomer to the sport who just wants to watch, do you realise how confusing downhill is? Oh, so basically, there's we have our qualifying on the Saturday, which isn't live-streamed, and then so you start watching on the Sunday. Oh, by the way, this is the best ride in the world who unaccountably came down an hour earlier than everyone else. They're in the hot seat for the next hour. We've got all this shit you haven't even seen. You know, we've got all these riders that you've never even heard of. It's like such a mess. Like, And so, I don't know, just coming about, about like taking risk and stuff, I would like to remove the concern about qualifying or being in the hunt. I would like them to know they're going to be in the hunt so then they can just let their hair down a bit. And also... You know, I've been sorry to go off a bit of a rant, but I think it'd be an amazing situation if protected spots weren't granted to riders. They were granted to teams. So then suddenly you've got teams chasing a really high position in the Constructors' Championship, whatever, the team championship. And then so they want to have strong squad riders. So that's going to artificially increase the demand for your top 40 rider because they need a good squad, just people to clock points. And then if one of their riders gets injured, if they've got four spots, then they could just recruit someone up from the national scene to drop in and they give them a taste of the high life and a bit of exposure and then maybe it's a developing rider that can come back and come into the fold next year and I don't know I just think World Cup riding has, seems to have inherited all the worst parts of road cycling without any of the money and just and now it's this mess of just confusion you get poor old Rob Warner trying to make sense of it on a Sunday oh and that's I don't know why they're I think they're oh god and then Claudio's zapping off and they're going to be 10 seconds up next split they're 10 seconds down like, <laughs> it's just mad yeah, yeah, it's, so, it's yeah. just a mess Anyway. Hey, I know you tried to change the topic here, but I want to go back to your most embarrassing mechanic fuck-up. Oh, shit, yeah. Um, what would be a good one? I was kind of all right. I never had any real bad ones. I mean, never, like, forget to tighten some bolts or... I remember, I remember one time the rider I was working with 
you know, as a good example, like a good example of why being a good bike shop mechanic isn't necessarily always the right way to do it in a World Cup. You would never really want to tighten the hell out of a seat clamp because you could just crush the tube. It's, it's, at some point, it's not doing it. But basically, so the way you tighten it at a World Cup is under no situation do you want that saddle to turn. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you damage the seat tube. You do not, that, <laughs> that saddle is not turning. And so I just did it like bike shop tight. And um, yeah, so the rider crashed or they got, they went over the front, but I think they would have ridden out if the saddle had not rotated. Oh. And that's something that, like, it's not like you move it with your hands. It's still, it's tight enough. A lot of forces going through but it. But if you there. have like, you know, 60, 70, 80 kilograms of just human pushing it in one direction, it can rotate. And so that was another example of something I got wrong and, and, and you learn from it. I mean, you do get better. Like, you know, you only have to learn something once about, you know, I, I think the hardest thing on a World Cup, being a mechanic, is making sure everything's tight and nothing wobbles loose and it's yeah. the correct tension. That is, sounds really simple, but basically no. No, it, it is the most important thing. And so I'm trying to think if there's anything. I, I was pretty lucky, man. I remember one time, actually, I'll tell you what, one time you get in, in my early days, like, you know, you do up a bolt on a three mil lock ring, sorry, three mil Allen key interface on a single lock ring grip. Yeah. Now, I mean, you don't, you know, you do a bit of a rev test. Now I swing off them because a rider's grip came loose in practice. Yeah. And it's not like, like to you and I, it's not a problem. But if you're charging through rock gardens, you're putting some torque through those grips. And um, yeah, and you know, you learn something like that. And the first couple of World Cups, it was like, like I said, you know, you got to be good enough now. There's no, no, nowhere to hide. And there are some teething trip pains in that. But then you, um, you just understand But we do things different here and you test everything. Like yeah. nothing, you know, before every practice, every quality and every race run, I'd start with every single Allen key on my bench. And from two mil, I'd go on every single two mil bolt and make sure it was torqued correctly. Not, not adding torque each time because that's in itself is problematic. Mm-hmm. Making sure it was torqued correctly. 2.5, three mil, go through every single thing every single rotor bolt, everything. And you do that like three times a weekend, you know? Do you have a checklist? Uh, no, just, and I just go yeah. start from front to back. And you know you know the bike as well. So no bolt would be would be missed. Yeah. I'm just picturing myself, if I was a World Cup mechanic, just being at the bottom and my rider's in the start gate and I'm just like, dear God, like I know I tightened that, mm. but did I tighten it? The, the worst thing for me was um, always tires. The rider is wants to have consistency so you'd always set the same tire pressure at the same altitude ideally the same te- temperature so that means once you set your pressures and you go up you can't psi test there you can only squeeze test because there's no point like the psi numbers can be arbitrary yeah and so they're warming up and i'd always be like just make sure but there's no reason for it to be a slow leak yeah. there's no reason but i'd always be like that would be the thing i'd be like is there a slow leak there isn't but is there but also you don't want to stress anyone out because then they might be you might your heart might be going but your hands got to be still yeah you know it's like it's pretty much the departed it's basically i am leonardo dicaprio in the <laughs> departed you know and yeah. um yeah and you just got to be very calm for them and if you're getting stressed out they're gonna be stressed out so their bike is okay and if you're a bit nervous about the tires you don't say shit man it's gonna be fine and the good riders are the riders with a good mechanical understanding will 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 help you out in that regard did you have any of your riders ask you to do things that you were just like, what? Oh, the shit. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, I know before my time, admittedly, but there's a, you know, Gusho, he would have his handlebars not straight deliberately. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah. Pascal was like that too. Michael Pascal. Yeah. He rode his handlebars turned slightly. Yeah. But also there's things like, you know, I, hmm, I'm trying to think of this stuff that I'd be like absolutely i mean a lot of stuff you just do you just take it yeah sure it's your bike you know you, you give me your opinion but the, ultimately is their thing i mean I've, I've got a friend that him and his rider were talking there was a world cup had a long sprint to the finish and my friend said who's the mechanic said let's not win sealant i think i've done some like bit of testing i think there is point three of a second maybe half a second in not winning sealant for this long flat bit, um, and he did do testing. He did. He, he did. He did testing yeah. without sealant. Yeah, yeah. He, he did a lot. This guy was a very, very good mechanic and very. Um, I mean, basically, he had a work ethic that far exceeded mine, for instance. <laughs> um, and so he was pretty sure that he, yeah, there would be a yield of up to 0.3, 0.4, 0.5 of a second. And the rider, fair enough, it's their call. Said no, I want sealant. 
and they came second by point of a second. Tough break. Yeah. But the right break, I mean, you don't know. I mean, you, you could do the one again and, and it could have, could have, something could have gone wrong and, and that's just racing, right? Because yeah. you could also say, oh, well, if you'd had a, uh, if you'd had a hard tail on that last bit, you'd have been so much faster. <laughs> yeah, but you'd have died at the first corner. So what does it matter? What, what do you guys do when you have a racer who doesn't want to run the parts, sponsor parts? Oh, that's a difficult one. I mean, hmm, it's tricky. You know, for me as a mechanic, I'm going to be really honest. If my racer said, Henry, like, if I go to the boss and ask if I can not run this part, they're going to say no. And so I would say, okay, well, I'm putting this part on your bike, the part that you want. And if the boss, if we get in trouble, we get in trouble. Yeah. Like, but I'm not going to tell anyone. And it's hard because, you know, we get these sponsors that they're supporting you. They're supporting your living, man. And you don't want to throw them under the bus. But at the same time, you need to give them the results that best represent their brand. So it's, it's a complete paradox in some ways. You know, and there are, there are some things like, I mean, there are little things like brake pads, which I think a lot of teams do. Like, they're running, I think a lot of teams are running things like trick stuff brake pads for instance, just because they're just better. Um, sorry, I shouldn't say that in, in blanket terms. I think maybe, you know, your big SRAM teams or your big Shimano teams aren't, but a lot of the teams that can get away with it are probably running a brake pad that is out of out of sync with their, their brand sponsorship sometimes. I, I well, mean, I know, that's I know that's small happening. beans, if you ask me. That makes that makes all the sense in the world. It no does make sense. See the brake pads. But when you have the Mr. Brake Pad come around to your pits and he says, why aren't you running those brake pads? We pay you X amount of money a year. And you say, well, when I have said in the past, because yours is shit, dude like i would that's kind of that not maybe wouldn't say shit but i'd say listen because yours aren't good enough we want to win races and so for me i'm it sounds really silly but i'm happy to go into bat for my rider absolutely and like as far as i'm concerned their responsibility is riding the bike my responsibility is maintaining the bike so if um i don't want them to get flack because like i don't want anything negative in that race weekend because sponsors would come around through the pits and for every, every team on the race weekend i don't want any negative space Sorry, any anything negative to come to their space. So if I've got to go into bat and defend some brake pads, so I don't have to have a conversation saying we've got to run the different brake pads because they've kicked up a fuss. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's absolutely fine. Like I've had, you know, conversations with brands, you know, like I said, before and after working at World Cups where I'm I've been amazed at how unprepared for criticism some brands are. Yeah. And I've always found that amazing. I feel like if you're gonna sponsor a World Cup team and have these boys and girls use your stuff you have to be ready it's like very different yeah. than me or you like testing their yeah totally i mean breaks, i don't want to know? talk about you know i've the, the stories i'm saying there weren't specific to polygon i'm speaking quite generically like, yeah you know they've got many i mean listen trick stuff and galf were both really good which was the sponsor at the time at polygon those breaks i mean fantastic insanity insanity yeah yeah but i'm just talking about like other experiences and talking you know i, I don't i don't want to throw them under the bus but it's always a strange thing when you meet people that are... I know, because, like, I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but, like, if, like, a real a real journalist read one of my articles and said, dude, that's crap, I'd go, you know what you're talking about. Yeah, you're right, probably. I might not understand it yet, but I will one day. You're probably right. Um, and, in fact, that's that's the largely response I'd take with most things. Like, I probably don't understand why it's bad yet, but it probably is. And it always amazed me that these people... These teams that are in it for racing and brands that now, like, like I said, in the industry, in it for racing. You give them some criticism and they can't take it. They cannot take it. And it's because we are but egos, you know? And a brand is a collection of people and a collection of egos. And if you get into an ego bottleneck where you're telling the truth to the wrong person, they'll, they'll just tell you wrong. And that happens at racing too. What's McKenna like to work with? I love Mick. He is... Mick's the real deal. I think some people they become like charged when they're getting close to race weekend and they, they need that nerves to make them to fire them up. Other people get calm. Mick was calm, confident. Like in terms of race, they're just strong and smooth. You know, everything strong and smooth through everything and um, pleasure to work with. Feedback was fantastic. You know, I mean, you know, you hear, I mean, there's a story many years ago of Aaron Gwynn when he was on Specialized. One thing, the sipes of the edge knobs filed out the moulds because he wanted he wanted to remove a bit of flexibility from the from the like the I suppose the structure of the tire. Yeah. You know, some of these guys are really sensitive. 
I don't believe it all, but sometimes you change stuff. You know, they'd always like, you know, you do a test and suspension. Yeah, we change everything. We, you, you, don't, you don't do anything. Yeah, we put 15 clicks of low speed on it and the rider comes back. Oh my God, it's totally different. Riders come back. You know, I, I feel a bit silly. I can't feel any difference. And those are the ones you trust. And uh, Mick was, feedback was fantastic. Yeah. Was he very picky? Picky's Mick, maybe not the right word. Mick knew when to fight his battles. Yeah, okay. You know, he'd be like, oh, this one's, this one's a big one. This one isn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean... No, I, I I trust Mick a lot, both as a person and as a rider, and he's someone I've got a lot of. Respect. And you know, and Tracy, Tracy, Tracy was great as well, and they all were really. Yeah. Did you get to ride with Mick too? I did a bit of riding with Mick. I mean, riding with him's probably a bit. Right. <laughs> but when I um, so I did a couple of years. I suppose I was kind of. We spoke about it before, but I went into a really weird space with road riding for a couple of years, and um, and I was dog shit at that too, for the record. But um, <laughs> I got back on the mountain bike and I bought a downhill bike and. Tracy and I rode a lot together one summer in New Zealand and she gave me the Hannah treatment of how to get quick on a bike. Not that she really succeeded, but I did get quicker and it was sick. We just smashed runs every day. It was awesome. Is that the Hannah treatment? Just run after run after run after yeah. run? Tracy smashes some runs, man. I mean, Jesus. Like, so the different structures and different... It's a, there's a lot of cultural divides in teams as well. Like you get the more European sense, which comes from sort of more of a road biking background where what would could often happen is there's the team bike, the race bike, which stays with the mechanic, and there's the training bike, which is at the home of the rider. And so there wouldn't be any carting back and forth. It does have this advantage. You know how some people, they struggle to feel the same, even though the bike's the exact same? So it does have that, that disadvantage. But if you can get past that, you're all good. And so Tracy would go home with her bike, you know, come back. Maybe the safe flight got delayed, so it's like, you know, so, oh, I only did 700 runs back in wet cairns. And you're like, no, Trace, you're joking. At World Cup speed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, Trace rode a lot and yeah she, yeah, she loved it. Hey, let's let's talk about that Polygon bike for a few minutes. I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. on the Enduro all-mountain version of that thing. I, I forget how much travel it had. Um, I loved the way that bike rode, but yeah. it also had a very sort of unique personality in yeah. how it worked. I think we could talk about this now. What, what what did the racers think of the bike? And they the, that I think that was a great bike, but not a great race bike. There were a couple of different things going on. I mean, yeah, I think we can talk about it. Can I talk about it? I think so. I think so. We'll it's do been, it. It's been years. Is that so, thing still around? Even um, I don't know. Polygon. If you have your lawyers, send the <laughs> send the affidavit to Robin Thurston. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Robin, <laughs> we need help. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think those bikes. I had one as well. I had the downhill bike. In my experience, it was a good bike. Unbelievable grip, traction. The traction was the most tra- to the point where if you rode it and you got on another bike, you'd be scanning like crazy because yeah. you were just so used to be able to put so much through the rear brake. Um, the problem was, I felt it was like if any of our listeners learnt to ski on some soft skis before graduating to some stiffer skis. Understand the stiffer skis are harder to ski but easier to generate power, especially when you come in turns. I always found on the exit of turns that polygon was a bit soft and unwieldy in a straight line because basically what it was was that one piece rear end, the leg could move almost independently, and the grip was fantastic, especially on off camber stuff. It was, but it was soft. And what happened was we would do a lot of shocks, Mm, a lot of stress on those shocks, yeah, because it's, it's not only a long triangle but then you've got a really long long yoke driving the shock and then a chunion mount on the downhill bike air so, or coil shock well we would run air because you, you do the internals of a coil shock in a day in a day especially like kenta would do a shock in a day but what could happen is you could get so much twisting through the frame and you do get it through some bikes when when companies will sometimes say oh this is actually optimized for air what they mean is please don't want to call a shock because you're going to snap it oh yeah po- polygon is far from the, far only, from brand. the only one yeah. yeah we're not picking on polygon here it's just interesting bike yeah. yeah totally and so what happens if is if you they get any twist in the shock either via via or basically kind of through the channels is you can actually burp air into the fluid and then basically as you can imagine there's a bit of movement before the oil gets pushed through the shims which then affects you know how, how how the oil compensates and so you basically get a step in the shock and this can happen like like i said very quickly like i can do it on a shock and i'm not putting like huge loads to the turn so you imagine what like the real deals are doing it's it's problematic and so once you get any of that scoring 
as it goes through, as the, the, the shaft goes through, the internal shaft goes through the bushes, it, it can bring air in, and then you get a lot of inconsistencies in the shock. You know, on, on a fork, you don't have that side load to get through, but yeah, it, it would also, like, you know, with, with a Fox 2 damper, so Grip 2 damper, for instance, it's actually overbled the system, and it's constantly purging out and refilling, that's why your oil's got to be the same in the lowers. But yeah, like, so, you know, nothing, nothing is immune from it, really, ingesting something you don't want to ingest in. Um, but in a shock, it can be real problematic because they're so highly charged. Did you guys develop that frame or help develop that frame over that, the that season? That was via consultancy. Oh. Prototyping is, is a strange thing. It's normally, don't look at the bike. <laughs> oh, oh, I happen to bring my own media team here to take photos of it. It's a fucking joke, man. Like, Beautiful you know, you photos this, of it leaned up against dude, the team track. you see all this bullshit digi camo and it's like they booked their factory slot 18 months in advance. It's done in carbon. Yeah, it's done. It's done. Yeah. That ship, the good ship prototype development, sailed long ago, and you're there. Basically, it's just it's an it's an exercise in media. If you don't, if people don't want you to see a bike, they have an alloy test mule that will look rough as shit, and they'll do it in some small corner of the world. They won't do it at World Cup, yeah. in my opinion, anyway. Unless the rider really thinks there's there's some, something to be gained. When it comes to bike setup, I think a lot of us have our own weird little tweaks like some of us like our brake levers like pointing up to the sky practically mm. or really close to the handlebar mm-hmm. or maybe the bite point super far out whatever your world cup racers on the team do they have any like kind of strange interesting setup hmm. things alex Fiol would ride his forks real hard like even compared to most of the world mm. cup people like when you do when you do uh, suspension testing with telemetry testing in my experience not I'm not like, you know, I'm not going to tell the guys at Fox, like, this is what happens. But, it, you know, in my ex- very brief experience with it, the engineers often try and, or the suspension technician is often trying to make the bike less comfortable and the rider's trying to make the bike more comfortable. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's all about having something that doesn't... F- you want something that tracks the ground without falling into holes. You know what I mean? And Alex Viola would be like, well, we don't. We don't add. We don't want to make this any like he's got it as uncomfortable as we go. Just in, in his natural setup. Why did he do that? Yeah, I think I think he liked quite a high front. Yeah. I think he liked just to keep the bike sat up at the front. And um, it's about preserving geometry and handling. It is about preserving geometry. And also, if you think about the way that you or I corner, we. You mean not well? Not well. <laughs> on like I said, on the y-axis. Yeah. Like that's. A, but basically, we actually probably demand. In some ways, because our body position is so poor, we actually probably demand a higher level of performance in terms of small bump and grip out of the front end than a lot of racers do. Yeah. Because a lot of racers, they're, they're just going so fast. Like, if it slips a millimetre, they don't give a fuck. Yeah. They're just smashing, man. And um, and so you and I are like, oh, we need, we, we need it. And like most riders do. But Alex Phil will literally be like, I'm just going to get through the turn. And then I'm going to get through the rocks. And I'm just going to preserve the geometry. And my body position is going to be bang on. And it's just going to be fine. <laughs> So I actually rode Mick's bike, the, the, his uh, Polygon downhill bike during Crankworks. I've mentioned it a couple times now. And aside from the brakes, those trick stuff brakes, like I almost flipped over the handlebars, mm-hmm. gently pulling the brake lever into the turn. Like it was the back end was up in the air. I was on the front tire for like 30 feet, <laughs> almost at the front door. I was just trying to fucking slow down for a corner. Yeah. So you had those brakes dialed. But the other thing that I remember thinking is, where is this bike's suspension? Mm. Like it, the suspension didn't move. It was so rough. Mm. But of course, I'm going 50% of the speed. Yeah. So I'm putting 50% of the forces. I mean, I'm sure that's not right, but I'm not putting anywhere near the forces that Mick is into this thing, am I? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that's that's a really important thing. Think about speed, you know, like, yeah, when when you're trying to get a bike to push into it, you know, we talk about, low speed or high speed compression rebound damping that's obviously relative to shaft speed and if you if the the whole chassis of the bike and the rider is going you know 50 percent quicker the shaft speed is going to be a lot higher and so what happens with orifice damping or basically is that you're going to get a whole column of oil trying to be pushed through an orifice that you can bury the sides it's low speed compression damping what happens is when you move the whole column of oil very quickly it's going to divert around that and go to the high speed damping circuit so the way that that low speed is basically sort of the preload on the system is going to be very different 
from a ride at the right tide because they don't want that whole column of oil just to smash through instantly. Mm-hmm. And so they would have them unbelievably hard. Yeah, yeah, very, very, very firm. And you'd also get, you know, the cool thing about working for, like working with a rider like Mick or Kenton, you know, the Suntour race support was really, really good. And you'd have different dampers. You'd have five dampers, Mick number one, Mick number two, Mick number three, and you knew what was in there. And so instead of being like, oh, can we, he'd be like, I want the setting from Andorra. Okay, here's the Andorra damper. Oh. And it'd be sick. Like, just off you go. I mean, you, 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 could, you could change it, but sometimes, you know, in terms of that, you know, for instance, Fox have the variable damping in terms of the, on the shims because they can preload the shims. But on most dampers, it's a, it's a bit different. So if you have something with a completely different shim stack, you just put the whole thing it's in It's just there. easier to change the whole damper. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. there's, a, there's a two minute foot nut, smash it out, off you go. How often would Mick ask you to do that? Is that a change you'd make I mean, every race? Mick or? wasn't my rider, so uh. it, would, it, would, it would be different. I mean, it could be as often as you know you could do it once twice in a race in a race weekend and then not do it for six months it depends yeah. depends on so many things so some of these racers they just want their bike to be the same i imagine as well yeah consistent yeah, uh, yeah totally i mean the same and consistent i mean i think when you think about gradient you want to have a it's the same with all of us when whether you, you know a reason enduro bike feels like shit on the flat and it comes alive on the descent and the same with the downcountry bike the inverse or a low front end is because you want biomechanically your body to be in a similar position just attacking the trail and so stack height like stem height was a, was a big thing yeah. um and just suiting the gradient and that that was often the big change it wasn't you know a page one rewrite on the suspension it, it might be but also it was just keeping keeping the body position in a similar place did you ever see your riders really nervous like mm-hmm. you're at val de sol you know it's race time yeah are riders nervous are these racers nervous I've I've seen people nervous. Do you see you see a change in their mm. Yeah. I mean like I said, some people come alive alive with nerves. Yeah. And it's like it's like stepping up for I don't know, stepping up for a bar fight. They get like just pump of adrenaline and then you get some people like Mick who's been bar fighting for twenty years and he, he knows uh he knows that he's all good. But it's hard because you know, as a mechanic I think you're you're there I think yeah, just to not add anything to their plate. And so for me, like on on a race weekend, like all bets are off. Like if you want to just basically be whatever you got to be to get maximum performance, that is completely fine. If that involves being pretty short with me, that is not a problem at all. Yeah. You know, and um, and I'd be there like I'd turn to like Mrs. Doubtfire. Hey, I'm like, can I get you a coffee, tea? What about I want to do this? What about like you know? Because you just yeah, it's all about making the rider feel like they've got nothing to put their energy on except going quickly on a bicycle. The race is done. I'm sure you've seen some good parties at World Cups. The parties were, I mean, I probably wasn't in the heyday. Yeah. You know, I mean, the one, I mean, I've been to some, like, you know, at World, World Champs and stuff, there'd always be a good party. I remember one time this guy, I mean, like, sorry, just to, this, these are really disastrous parties. These are like super bad parties, you know? Because often, like I said, the, the partying heyday was over and by the end of the World Cup, like a lot of people, you might get the, you know, the young privateers and stuff that are out there to have a wild time, but a lot of people have families, like, and they have partners that they want to go home to and they don't want to they, they want to have like a 10 hour drive the next day hungover they want to go and have a nice time with their family remember this one time we used to have this uh, oh god we used to have the top of the our, the top of our truck could be ver- converted into a patio and you know what I mean by like kind of indented aluminium floor yeah. it's like grippy Yeah. it was that so basically what we had was the world's biggest tanning bed and um, the driver had a few beers and felt he'd like to go for a bit of a lie down in the sun. And he went for, <laughs> he went for a lie down. And honestly, man, he looked like he, when he looked like, like he made Donald Trump look like natural and glowing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He yeah. came down and we were like, oh my God, this guy was roasted. Yeah. 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 Real, real bad. I don't, I don't want to go all TMZ here, mm-hmm. but we hear some stories from World Cups and parties and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You ever see any fistfights between World Cup racers? You hear about stuff, yeah. You definitely hear about stuff. I mean, there's a great story that my friend once told me about this World Cup of Monte Anne, like ten years ago, right? And there was those. I know that sounds a bit silly, like hard men, but there were some tough buggers on the World Cup circuit. Different you know? times, <laughs> different times. And there was this local Quebec dude that came up to wanting to fight big men, and so he came to a mountain bike and World Cup after party. And apparently, he just started knocking people out, hmm. and then like the big big hitters of the time went and tried to calm this guy down and he was just knocking him out 
and he knocked out like six of the, of the ten World Cup, ten best World Cup riders. Six of them were unconscious, and this guy was just swinging hooks. And my friend who was there, who was quite like a young gun at the time, he was just watching it like, oh my god, like look at all these big, like the big riders of the day who are known as being like hard and no nonsense. The, the, the racers that get like twentieth are at this party, and they're like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and tomorrow's yeah. gonna be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Um, but the partying was always. Like I said, I think I think it had its heyday back in the day. Yeah, and it's it's. In, I don't think it's more serious now in that. Like I think those riders were serious, but I think that it's there's more of a support structure for good and for bad that is about racing. So now people are like, no, you're not going to go partying. Like, and people get instilled that in a young age. I mean, you get people like I know it sounds stupid. We're talking about Jackson Goldstone and that, like going on the syndicate and learning things from Manar. People say he still he still can. You know, he still parties, and that's what's pretty amazing about Manar is that he still gets it done, you know? All right, everybody, that is it for today's podcast, World Cup Mechanic Stories with Henry Quinney. Put those questions down in the comment section, and he's going to go in there and answer them. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>